Yoel Omowale and you are listening to the Yoel Omowale podcast. So today I am joined by Reverend Jade McCauley and he is the founder and CEO of the House of Rainbow and he is also a priest in the Anglican Church. I'm excited to have a conversation with this brother. I came across him on, on Facebook and he's been doing some fascinating work and advocacy, particularly amongst the LGBT community here in the UK and internationally. And I'm going to let you listen in if you if you don't mind. Just listen carefully to his story. He's going to share some, some, some insights. There may be some difficult elements to his story that he may choose to share as well. And so a trigger warning for those, uh, you know, just, just, just ahead of that. But um, G-Day, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you so much, Joe. Great. Um, it's a great honor to be here and um, it's just fantastic to be part of this program as well. And then, um, you know, the, the fact that you found me on Facebook and social media, it just meant mm. that, you know, we've been very active, you know. Um, um, I, I'm a Christian uh, priest who mm. is gay, who is um, mm. from Nigeria, is my heritage, and um, and also living with HIV for the past 18 years. And I know that uh, some people might be thinking, how did he do it? How is he coping? But I want to put it mm. out there clearly that I'm doing fine because God is good all the time for me. Um, you know, so um, I was born in London and to Nigerian parents. My parents were students when they came to England, probably in the early 60s. And um, uh, I grew up in Nigeria. So my formative years were in Nigeria. And I was in Nigeria until my late teens before I returned to London to continue my education uh, in London. And of course, you know, throughout my, my childhood, I've always been aware of my sexuality, and um, but I didn't have a name to it. I mean, there were many, many uh, experiences. And, and, and one of the ones that I always remember is that, you know, as you come into puberty, I think around about age 13, 14, and I remember that I had a friend who was very close. And to be honest, I mean, I, I sometimes talk about this and people feel that I always joke too much. Uh, this, this young man, I believe was my boyfriend, but I think, didn't think that he knew he was my boyfriend. Uh, we were so close. And um, also people always ask this question about how did you know that you were gay? I've always known when I was like five, six years old. And, and there was an incident, you know, in, in my grandmother's home, because in Nigeria, you know, when you visit the grandparents, you know, it's like the entire cousins and, and family gathered together. And I remember um, I was quite effeminate. My grandmother approached me and she clenched her fist and punched me in the chest. I was about nine years old. And she said, mm. sound like a boy. No grandchild of mine would be a sissy. Um, oh my grandmother was... Uh, 
a Jehovah's Witness. So looking back now, I mm. knew that she she had a view that homosexuality is not going to be present in her family. And that was deeply mm. painful because even now today, I, I do a lot of work, um, you know, helping victims of uh, emotional, physical abuse, you know. So, yeah. and, and that's something that I've experienced myself. But having said that, you know, I mean, I was born into a very conservative Christian family. My father is a minister of the gospel. Uh, my father is, well, well, my father led many, many churches. He was a church planter in Nigeria. You know, for those who understand that language, he's always, you know, starting missions all over the country. And later on, my father became an academic. So he started what I believe to be Nigeria's second uh, maybe largest or influential um, theological university called United Bible University in Nigeria. And, um, mm. you know, so I trained with my father. I trained in theology with my father. In fact, my master's degree in theology was at my father's institution. And, you know, at the end of my training and, and, and studies, you know, I was then um, ordained uh, a priest in September of 1998 at my father's institution. And you can imagine the joy um, for my father that he ordained one of his own child, one of his own children, rather, mm. one of his own children to become uh, a minister, following in his footsteps, so to say. Mm. Uh, my father studied engineering, so it's not quite all in his footsteps, but I was, I was very much interested in theology. I was very much interested in pastoral care. And a lot of this happened, you know, in times where I believe there's a storm in my own life. There were just too many storms, you know, and, um, you know, of course, living in London and becoming more aware of my sexuality was an advantage, but it also came with a high degree of pain because, um, you know, um, even though I'm, I'm living in England, there is also the fact that I was very much immersed and invested in the Nigerian community in London. So it meant that there was no room for me to experience a better understanding of my own sexuality as a gay man. Mm -hmm. So in that environment, which also included my, my church environment, I took a lot of time out to pray to God to pray away my sexuality. God, I don't want to be gay. I don't want this illness. I don't want this sickness. And um, the way that I was trained, you know, growing up as a Christian, is that when you have issues and problems, you know, you, you fast and pray. You know, Christians fast when they have a lot of issues. We fast and we pray. So I, you know, prayed to God and I, I committed myself to 40 days of fasting and praying. And um, this is almost reminiscent uh, to, you know, after Jesus' baptism, when he went onto the mountains or into the, well, into the mountains, and then he prayed for 40 days, and then he was able to conquer, you know, Satan. So I felt that, you know, these issues about my sexuality is so terrible. It's so awful. I needed God in this moment. So I went out and I prayed. But you know, also, we were taught in our Christian journey that when we pray, we don't only just pray, we put a fleece out to God. And we've seen examples in scriptures. So, I mean, my example at the time was, you know, God 
um, you know, Isaac prayed for the wife and he said, God, I will bless you. I will do this for you. So the same with Jacob as well. So I went down the same line. God, you know, you give Isaac a wife. You gave Jacob a wife. I want a wife. If you do this for me, I will praise you. I will worship you. I will do this and that. And of course, after my 40 days of fasting and praying, uh, there was a young lady in church that I turned to and said, will you be my girlfriend? And she said, yes. And I said, no, I said, God is a miracle working God because I am no longer gay. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> for me in that moment i didn't think that anything has changed around my feelings towards you know same gender loving but i was prepared to work hard and the more i work hard the more i believe that i still have the feelings and the relationship grew and grew and if, i mean we were together for seven years and let me break it down. The first two years of our relationship, it was boyfriend, girlfriend, we lived in different places. So the, the, the second two years of our relationship, we started to live together. We were cohabiting, we were not married. And of course, it was at the end of our four-year relationship that you know, her family and the church started to have conversations with us about, no, you cannot live together if you're not married. It's better if you're married. Mm. And so, and by this time, I think I was about 20, 25 years old. Okay. So it was pretty difficult. Um, so um, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was quite ready. And I think that what I did in that time was that I did suppress you know, my sexual feelings towards men. And I decided that, look, God, I have a girlfriend and she's going to be my wife and I'm not gay. And of course, you know, we got married in 1991 and, um, and the pressure started. I had more pressure than I ever did, especially around my relationship, you know, my mental health, my well-being. Everything was just going down south. It was just really, really terrible. And um, in that time, we also kind of struggled, you know, to conceive uh, because we had a child together before uh, I eventually came out to her. So three years of marriage, and now we have a baby who is just about a year old. Um, <clears throat> it was really difficult. I was going through a lot um, in that moment. So I decided, look, you know, this is time for me to tell her. Um, which is rather unfortunate because it would be nice if I had the courage to tell her before or earlier yeah. on, but I didn't have the courage. But I think that, you know, life expectancy itself, you know, um, and, and that journey was very, very difficult. Um, I would say that, you know, when I came out to her, it was a relief because uh, in her own words, she said, I can't compete with this when I told mm -hmm. her that I'm gay. And I think that understanding for me came uh, I was hoping for a journey of reconciliation. But unfortunately, we tried to work things out. And a few months later, she had a breakdown. You know, um, I think she kind of blamed herself that it was her fault and things like that. She should have known. And because at the time there was no information to support queer people, it meant that mm -hmm. we were still sitting in the dark, even around that time. Yeah. But I think the other question that people always ask me is also about my faith. You know, how did that impact your faith? Um, I think that it, it didn't impact my faith in God. I didn't think that it actually impacted my relationship with God as well. But it made me question many things, especially the attitude of the church, the attitude of the church leaders, because when I came out, I was immediately excommunicated from the church that I knew. 
the, the church family that I knew turned against me. Mm. It was really difficult for me to actually reconcile that. I was more painful than anything else. I would have thought that I would have the support. So, you know, I felt like a stranger in the spaces where I felt very familiar and, and at home. And that was very really troubling. So I decided to obviously not go to church. So I didn't go to church for about two years. But mm -hmm. in that time, you know, I had a lot of questions. Um, so when I first came out, you know, I started to um, explore, you know, and trying to find the communities of the gay community. And when I found the gay community in London, they were mostly white people. And I think, God, I'm black. You know, they've already said that black people cannot be gay. So it looks like maybe they're right. And, you know, Christians cannot be gay. Maybe the church is right. So, and, you know, you have to wrestle with this kind of, you know, dichotomy. And it's really impacting on my mental health and my well-being at the wow. time. So two years after my separation and divorce from my, from my ex-wife, um, I found a church community in London and I, I made a conscious decision that I want to go back to church. But I also was determined that now that I'm gay, I understand that, but I want to go to church because I want to be a good Christian. I want to make heaven. But it was so difficult. So in this moment, I kind of created like two worlds for myself because, you know, I have my gay friends that I hang out with and I also have my, the church that I go to. And of course, with me as, as a person, I'm always quick at making friends. So at church, I've already made friends. I've joined several departments in, in church where I was part of the for uh, you know the meeting and greeting the pastoral care department the church department the poetry department you know that all the departments each other i was almost part of everything because i just love the space but of course you know it was difficult because i had to have two different stories to tell people the story yeah. of me being gay with my gay friends and the story with my christian friends it was so difficult i had to remember you know that these people don't mix i cannot mix mm -hmm. them up I cannot tell my Christian friends that I'm gay and I cannot, you know, have a conversation about my Christian faith with my gay friends because even when it comes up with my gay friends, they always say, no, Christianity is condemning us. You know, we don't want to be a part of that. And I didn't want to feel ostracized in both spaces. Yeah. But I think that things came to head um, about four or five years later um, when I did a, a television documentary um, uh, on, on British uh, television. And in that documentary, I was actually silhouetted in that documentary. I, you know, the intention was to protect my identity. But my story was so unique that everyone that watched it, that knew me, knew it was me straight away. Wow. And this was the days of VHS. So I think for, for those listening, <laughs> I don't think they understand features, God. You know, features mm. <laughs> videos where you can just press down two buttons on on the cassette and you can record. So, yeah. and people recorded the program, and um, a copy um, was sent to the pastors of the church. Mm. Then I was summoned into church and uh, to answer questions about the documentary, and they asked me if I was the one in the documentary. I didn't lie. I said yes, but I was already feeling broken, very emotional, and um, the ministers in the church didn't spare me. Um, you know, they called me names. They called me an abomination. They called me contaminated soil. They they said that I was Satan's 
plants in the church to destroy the church. Um, I was accused of so many things and they asked me to confess if there were other homosexuals that I have brought to the church because I have inflicted the spirit of homosexuality in the church. And um, and uh, I was subjected to conversion therapy. Um, they laid hands on me. Um, I was physically beaten because they believed that's the way to cast out the demon out of me. Um, I was subjected to emotional trauma and um, a few examples of the emotional trauma includes people in the church that were making snide remarks against me. You know, uh, people kept their distance from me. I was not allowed to participate in being a, a minister in the children's church, you know, so any form of leadership role was taken away from me. And um, on two occasions that I also remember very well, it was actually prayer time. We always have prayer meetings. And uh, a brother came along one day in the prayer, laid hands on my shoulder and started to pray in tongues. And then he kept on saying that it, the Lord will give me a wife. The Lord will give you a wife. And I was really horrified by that. So I remember snapping that day. I turned around and yelled. And, and I remember running out of the prayer room and just running to wherever I can run to. Um, but someone came after me on that day, you know, to comfort me and, and she comforted me and said, look, Jude, they, I don't think that they would understand, but she stood by me. I will still remain friends up to today. Now, the second oh. incident was also uh, a prayer vigil. And um, when I arrived at the prayer vigil, there were a um, map of London, you know, blown up and they were all around the wall uh, in the prayer room. Mm. And... Um, um, the, the prayer video was called prayer mapping, spiritual mapping kind of prayer. Mm -hmm. So the hard mass of London where significantly there were, you know, increased numbers of gun crimes or knife crimes, you know, black on black crime, as they say. And there were also parts of London where there is the red light districts with a lot of prostitution, you know, and so on. So we were praying. So the prayer was kind of really everywhere. And there was also a map <clears throat> of Soho. I mean, Soho in London is an area that I believe is in the preserved um, or condemned area for the gay community. So there were gay bars and clubs and restaurants and everything that caters, you know, primarily to the LGBT community. So the map was up as well. So you can imagine what happened. They were praying against the spirit of gun crime, the spirit of prostitution, and then when they came to the map of Soho, they said we are praying against the spirit of homosexuality. And I remember that evening um, that I just grabbed a chair and I sat down and, um, you know, so the, the brother that was leading the meeting came to me and said, Jude, why are you not praying against the spirit of homosexuality? You need to pray against the spirit of homosexuality. To be quite honest, I just looked up at him and said, I don't have the burden right now when you introduce the next prayer point i will pray now what's quite significant about that is that it was part of my coming out because in that moment they knew that i was gay you know they knew that there was no more they can do but they've already done a lot of damage you know towards me but yeah. you know i didn't stop there you know i think i finally found the courage and i stopped going to to church again and i think it was around about 2001 2002, you know, that uh, a, a group of friends were visiting from South Africa in London and they needed somewhere to stay. 
and I was one of the people that hosted them. And you know, there were a group of choirs that came to to London, and you know, they were going to a church. You know what? Mm. Honestly, this time I don't want to even hear the word church, let alone be invited to one. Uh, but my relationship with God hasn't changed. You know, um, this is this for me. Part of that is just I was struggling. I was really, really struggling. I think I needed. Mm you know, to to have just one life, not multiple lives. You know, I want to reconcile my yeah. faith and my sexuality. That was so important for me. But I mean, the good things was that, you know, I didn't go to the church with them. So I didn't see them, um, you know, singing or doing anything in those churches. But when they left, um, you know, the country, they left me with the phone number of the minister of the church, um, I later got to know to be the Metropolitan Community Church in North London. Mm-hmm. And when I called them up, you know, it was the best decision that I made because I was on the phone for hours just talking about my challenges and I was invited to church. And when I started going to the church, I started to see um, that I can reconcile my faith and my sexuality. Uh, because I've already been ordained a priest, you know, by my father in 1998, you know, one of the first things that I asked the church is that, can I be a priest here? Because I would very much love to bring all of my, um, you know, uh, clergy credentials and maybe I need to do more studying, I need to do more training. I really want to serve God. And, you know, between 2001 and 2005, I had this amazing journey of reconciling my faith and my sexuality. You know, I had a full scholarship. You know, I had a placement in the church in London and I went to late to, went to, went to, went to, um, um, the US, um, California, um, San Francisco mm-hmm. to be precise, where I went to the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, where I had a lot of training and, and most studies about sexuality and, and God and faith. And, and I'm one of those students in the classroom that was screaming, yell, oh my God, are you serious? Are you serious that are gay people in creation? Are you serious? I, you know, I really questioned my lecturers so badly. And, you know, I was so determined, you know, I mean, I would wake up like three, four o'clock in the morning to read all my notes to make sure that I'm ready, you know, for the next lecture, because I was just so enthused. I was so happy that, boy, God really do love me. And mm. for me, when I came back to London at the end of 2005, you know, they had an ordination ceremony for me. And um, I remember sharing all of this good news with my own family, um, you know, my, my dad, my mother and everyone. And mm. my dad turned around to my family to say, do not go to his church. It's the church of the devil. Oh. Now, I tell you one thing, honestly, um, you know, let me just back up a little bit and I'll come back to this moment. Um, in 2003, um, January 2003, um, I got a diagnosis of HIV. Um, I was infected mm-hmm. with HIV. So I was reeling with that trauma uh, of that news. And it was around in the same year, you know, that I also committed myself to the journey with the Metropolitan Community Church. So I was receiving pastoral care and nurturing. And I remember telling the priest at the uh, Metropolitan Community Church that I'm HIV positive. He said, that's okay. That it, it will not have mm-hmm. an impact on your training. And I remember that summer, my father was visiting London and um, because I, my home was more quieter than anywhere else. So he decided to stay with me. 
And I remember that I had to degay my home for my father. And I use that word degay, meaning that my home was very gay. But when my father came, I had to take down paintings and pictures and books from my bookshelf and everything, put them in boxes and take them out to story because my father cannot come across all these materials or artifacts at all because, it, wow. you know, he would get to know that I'm gay. But what I like about God is that God has a sense of humor. One book got away, and that book is, the title of the book is Pastor, I Am Gay. The author is the Reverend Bess Howard. Mm. My father found the book, and I remember returning back from work, the book was sitting on the coffee table, and we had to have this very difficult conversation. The mm. conversation with my father was more painful than anything else. My father told mm. me, that I'm a disgrace to his family. His reputation is at stake with my sexuality. I should find myself another woman immediately and all this foolishness will disappear. And I just cannot believe in that moment. Mm. And as an African child, you just listen to your parents, you know, with a venom that comes out of them. You do not respond, you kind of argue with them. So for about 20 minutes or more, my father spoke all these painful things into my life. You understand mm. me? Um, I was I was terrified. I was concerned um, about my own well-being, and I think that for me, in that moment, I knew that I could not give in to this kind of abuse because I'm already mm. on that journey, reconciling my faith and my sexuality, and also I was at the same time as well. You know, in the gay community, that a group of black gay brothers have come together to have an intensive time of caring for each other over a period of six weeks. So I was receiving healing, not just from the church, the Metropolitan Community Church, but also from my black gay brothers, because we come together mm -hmm. to talk about so many of our own challenges, you know, and in, in order to reconcile our process of coming out. Now, of course, you know, having said that, you know, let me go back to uh, 2005 when you know, I had um, the ceremony following my ordination. Um, and gracefully, my mother came along. My mother came wow. along to the service. She celebrated with me. And I remember that, you know, she really danced the most, you know, to say congratulations, my child. Um, mm. My relationship with my mother was, was much better, um, far better than my relationship with my father. But nonetheless, I mean, this was a time, you know, when I completed my training with the Metropolitan Community Church that I was finally able to reconcile my faith and my sexuality. I didn't have to live this kind of Jekyll and Hyde, you know, kind of life, you know, where I had Christian friends and gay friends that I couldn't communicate with. But of course, you know, even with the reconciliation also comes a lot of responsibilities and challenges as well. I mean, my, 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 a lot of my gay friends were skeptical. And I think that, you know, along the line, you know, a group of gay people, black gay people that said to me that, Jide, you're a disgrace, you know, to, to black people because you've embraced the colonizer's religion. So at some point it's a seed that you cannot win, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but my Christian, I mean, the, the Christian friends that I knew, you know, at the time I was at the Pentecostal church and other places, they kept their distance from me because they think that the devil has finally won over me. But I just knew that God is calling me into something much greater 
God is calling me into a ministry of inclusion, of diversity, that has a lot of intersectionality with it. And of course, you know, the spirit of equality. Uh, what more, you know, could I have? So um, in 2006, I've already been working on the uh, understanding that I will be going to Nigeria, you know, to start the community of House of Rainbow. Mm-hmm. So my journey of reconciling my faith and sexuality, his take uh, a tumble, is taking a hit, is taking so much. But the reality for me is that knowing that God is loving, mm-hmm. I couldn't wait to share this to those people that are extremely suffering because I've also been in the place of, 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 of suffering. And I know that it's important for people to hear the word that God loves you the way you are. You know, I have learned from many others, from scholars, from, you know, inclusive and queer theologians. I have learned, you know, I have sat, you know, at the feet of many, many incredible, you know, theologians who are uh, inclusive and I've come to understand so much. And I couldn't wait to share this with others. And that was what took me back to Nigeria in 2006. But prior to that, you know, um, between 1996, and 2004, I've been going forwards and backwards to Nigeria just to examine what the mood is uh, in the country and just to to check in about, hey, you know, what's it like to have a church that is inclusive to the queer community? And, and I remember, you know, going to several LGBT conferences in Nigeria, of course, as a visitor mm. uh, from London. And I find it, you know, you know, the space is quite toxic because you know, there are people that will come from different groups that will derail the conference or attack the people. But I was very much interested in the LGBT people and the community there and looking out for their needs, you know. So my my primary focus was creating safe space for LGBT people to worship. Mm-hmm. By God's grace, on the 2nd of September, 2006, that reality that dream, that vision became a reality. We had our first service in Lagos, Nigeria with 34 people in attendance. I was nervous because I remember in that meeting, it was so difficult for me to use the words lesbian, gay, bisexual because I was so concerned. Yeah. But what God did after that was seriously a miracle. The following week, the number doubled. And then from that moment, the number was higher and higher. And then at the end of the year, in December, um, you know, I was having a meal in a restaurant in Lagos. And, uh, you know, uh, a group of people came along and joined us. And then I was introduced to um, uh, an American journalist who had come to Nigeria on a very different uh, assignment. And someone introduced me to the journalist as... Oh, meet Reverend Judy McCauley from London. He has come to Nigeria to start the gay church. I mean, that in itself was like, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, was, that was definitely a headline that you cannot miss. I mean, right. this journalist, not only did he pay attention to his original assignment, he felt that he has got a new one. And of course, the conversation in 2006 was the newly introduced anti-gay bill by the Nigerian right. government. And you know the bill was in, was 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 introduced to the country in January. I arrived in Nigeria in August. House of Rainbow started in September of 2006, and now we're still having this conversation in December. 
But what I do know in that moment was that my father, who is also a very highly influential and leading theologian, is in support of the bill, and I was against it. So the journalist wrote an article mm. which was featured in Wall Street Journal. Um, I believe the article is sometime in January or February of 2007. Now, the headline for the uh, article is Anti-Gay Bill Divides Family. So um, my father's comments and my comments, so it was Reverend Macaulay Sr., Reverend Macaulay Jr. And honestly speaking, I mean, this story will probably made would be, be incredible for an episode, it's like a dramatic right. episode. But nonetheless, I mean, I was very, very uh, determined that no, we're going to have to stand with the LGBT community. It's wrong to have to persecute the LGBT people. So in February uh, 2007, 14th of February, it was Valentine's Day. Um, I think Nigeria ruined Valentine's Day for the LGBT community <laughs> in that year. Um, we were right. gathered in Abuja um, at the Nigerian parliament, you know, to respond in a public debate on the anti-gay mm -hmm. bill. I was one of several speakers from the LGBT community who had, you know, signed up to speak in parliament. And I remember delivering my own statement, you know, we're given about four minutes and uh, with a clerical color on, um, I responded, I'm Reverend Judy McCauley, and I appeal to the government not to pass this bill. I condemn this bill. And, you know, you know, just appealing to the government. And in that moment, I think, you know, myself and House of Rainbow became very popular because there was a live transmission. And of course, the newspapers following that was gay pastor, abomination, and you name it. Um, so mm. for the next two years or so, or for the next year and a half, you know, um, my organization, the House of Rainbow, was severely attacked in the media. We were, our members were attacked at home. Um, those who were discovered to be members of House of Rainbow were either fired from their job, evicted from their homes, or, you know, attacked in the street. It became terrible time. It was as if we were in a war zone uh, in our own nation. And, wow. At the end of 2008, you know, I was um, asked to return to London by my clerical supervisor because Nigeria was no longer safe. My life was targeted quite severely. Yeah. And I knew that if I was targeted, so would be members of my community. Um, when I left Nigeria, um, I left Nigeria just with um, a backpack. I couldn't pack a suitcase. Um, within three days of me leaving Nigeria, my home was vandalized and was broken into uh, by hooligans who were out to get me. So I was quite fortunate that I left the country. So for me, I mean, I think for me that, that raised a lot of questions around my fate again. And I remember returning to London and I was depressed for about a year and a half. But I'm also very determined that I'm not going to let this stop me. So in April of 2010, um, I started, you know, fellowship again in London, in my front room in Leighton. Um, and I remember very well, the first time, there's about seven people, they were my friends, you know, I've asked them to come along, you know, so we can have Bible study. Um, right. By summer, by August, the number had doubled so that we had to go get a gazebo 
um, you know, to set up a tent in my garden. I went to buy more chairs, you know, from the uh, from from the warehouse store so that people can have somewhere to sit. And also in that same month, you know, a local priest, a local Anglican priest, you know, came to a meeting and said, you know, that we're more than welcome to use the church hall, um, you know, from the following month. So we end up staying in our church hall for about four years, which was incredible. You know, we're creating space and fellowship. And to be quite honest, um, my father did return back to visit me in London in 2011. And again, just like 2003, he stayed with me. This time, mm. I did not decay my house. I left everything up. The posters were up, you know, the, the book on the coffee table was there. Nothing moved this time around. And that was mm. when my father said that your house is too gay. You know, it's something you can't win. I mean, this time my father is very, he knows that I'm gay. You know, we've already had the issue with the media in Nigeria, but I was very determined to keep my relationship with my own father because I felt it's far more important, you know, <clears throat> for us to do that. And because my father is also an academic and a theologian, I was, the, my hope was that we would journey together. So as I'm learning about reconciling my faith and sexuality and investing in materials and books, I was also investing this in my father. But unfortunately, my father decided to stay hardcore with his typical Nigerian or African mentality around homosexuality. So he never truly accepted me as gay. And when it came to 2000 and, so 2014, um, I mean, 2012, I visited Nigeria. I did a lot of things in Nigeria. But 2014, January of 2014, the anti-gay bill that had been through the Nigerian parliament was finally passed into law and it was now called the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act. In that month, my father was on all the media platforms congratulating the Nigerian president. And then they asked him a question about his son being gay. He said that, that his son needs to go to conversion therapy. And if he, get a, if he wind up in jail for 14 years, he might become straight. And that broke me a lot. I could not have a relationship with my father who is prepared mm. to throw me to the wolves, you understand me? Yeah. And have yeah. me thrown into jail for who I am. So when I look out, I look out to the community, I look out to the LGBT community in the millions. And I think, I think I'm, at that point I was very clear uh, that God is truly calling me to provide pastoral care and support to the LGBT community. Wow. And of course, you know, just let me back up a little bit, because when I came back from Nigeria to London, um, it was incredible because I've always had a journey with the Anglican Church in London. I was, in fact, I was introduced to the Anglican Church in 1997. Um, uh, a friend of mine, you know, when I met him, they, they, he was the founder um, of Changing Attitudes. His name is Colin Coward. He introduced me to the Anglican Church, you know, and I would go now and again, you know, but I didn't find it interesting because I kind of prefer the charismatic movement, if you see what I mean. I like the, I like yeah. the loud and vibrant church. So the Church of England <laughs> didn't actually do it for me at the time. But of course, you know, on that journey as well, you know, I, I met um, another priest in the Church of England called um, Stephen Saxby uh, in 1999. And in 1999, I went along to his church and I would still go to the Pentecostal church and would go to his church. And then his church, at the end of 1999, were organizing um, 
the Passion Week. So they had a play that was to be delivered, presented in, in the borough of Newham called uh, The Passion of Christ, of course. So, you know, when I went for the audition, I was quite surprised that, you know, uh, in a neighborhood that is so white, I was casted as Jesus. So <laughs> that was quite an, an incredible achievement. So I ended up playing Jesus um, for the 2000 uh, millennium um, Passion of Christ play in the borough. And again, that was also part of my connection with the Anglican church. So I would go now and again. So when I returned from Nigeria in at the end of 2008, and more precisely in 2009, you know, my um, colleague and friend, Stephen Sasby, you know, said to me, Jude, you know, we love your ministry. We've been following what you're doing. Um, you know, we think you should consider training um, to become an Anglican priest. Um, mm. I gave you some thoughts. Um, maybe for about a year. And I went around and did my own investigation. I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to talk to queer people, particularly LGBT people who are priests in the Church of England. And I couldn't find a single black, openly gay, lesbian or gay to talk to in the Church of England. So everyone I spoke to was white. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it didn't put me off, you know. Um, it kind of confirmed, you know, some of my concerns earlier on. But of course, you know, there, there was a bishop, um, you know, that was very much, um, yeah, Bishop David Hawkins uh, was very much supportive. He's under he understood my ministry and um, he's welcomed me on board. So I actually went to um, meet with him and then I was sent to the ordinary advisor, um, you know, the process of me enrolling uh, was straightforward. There was no complication. My ministry as an openly gay man with House of Rainbow and the Metropolitan Community Church was very open. You know, there was no concern. So um, they put me through the process, which is called um, the Bishop's Advisory Panel. And I was successful. So I was selected for training. Then I went along to um, 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 the Anglican Training Ground, Westcott House in Cambridge, you know, to train for uh, priesthood in the Church of England. So that was from 20, uh, 2011 to 2013, I was ordained a deacon. And then of course, you know, academically, you know, I was awarded a postgraduate certificate for pastoral theology, for which I am internally grateful. So this is how I came to become part of the Anglican Church and the Church of England. But the, the other reality is that the, the Anglican Church of Nigeria became very much aware that I was training. So there were kafoku between them. Um, you know, people were uprising against me. Um, people were saying, no, he should not be ordained in the Church of England, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. So, but I mean, I've always wanted to be a priest, not just a priest who is gay or the priest just to the gay people, but the priest to all people. But I knew that also there was a clear purpose for my own journey as well in ministry in the sense that I believe that God is strategically positioning people. Julia, I think we've lost you. Man. 
Jide, yeah. we, we lost you when you said, don't worry, because we can always go back and edit this. You said you believe that God is strategically positioning and then it cut off. So, oh, okay. Could you Let mind just that starting that sentence again? Yeah. Absolutely. I believe that my journey to the Church of England, the Anglican uh, communion, is very important. I believe that God is strategic in positioning me in these places because it is not... Um, it's not just it's not a mistake that you know I had uh, a journey with the Metropolitan Community Church which I still love and still connected to Uh, the Metropolitan Community Church provided a platform for me to reconcile my faith and my sexuality which I don't believe the Church of England can do but I believe that God has strategically positioned me in this place in this time you know in order that I can also respond by providing appropriate culturally sensitive pastoral care to the LGBT community, but particularly to Black African Caribbean uh, LGBT Christians as well, and and those without faith. Because there's so many of us in church that we can't even, you know, um, come out and let our light so shine. But I believe that God is doing this. And and I don't say this, you know, out of any kind of uh, content, but I say this out of conviction because I have come to know who I am and I know God knows who, who I am. I know who God is. And in that as well, it's important for me to be a, a visible representation of who God is for the LGBT people. To be able to utter those three words, God adores you. God mm-hmm. accepts you. To the LGBT person that have been told that they are an abomination and that they are, they are only fitted for eternal damnation to hell. But I want to say to them that God adores you. And you know, that's the crux of my message. If I say nothing else, this is the message. And this is part of my own journey of reconciling my faith, my sexuality, my HIV status, my blackness and my queerness, and many more. Amen. Wow. I, you know, I have just sat down here and I've been stunned. My emotions have been pulled in so many different directions as I've heard you so, um, so carefully with such um, intention and um, just articulate your story. And it's, um, I, I consider it just a privilege to have heard it in in such detail because i think again this conversation reminds me of why we need to do this more why we need to to sit down put aside our egos put aside our you know sometimes even our agenda and just and just listen to the other person i mean and so much of what you've said i mean you know we've had we've had some interactions on facebook you know some of my journey um and and where i i stand and some of my wrestling with with church history, doctrine, and some of the the difficulties that um, certain marginalized people have had to had to face because of um, you know certain ideas that are, are you know have been propagated um, religiously. So you know just the very the very notion that you're who you are as a same sex attracted person is something that you even need to. To have gone through this it just in painful experience of having to um to reconcile and to accept is is largely in part of 
uh, you know, due to due to the some of the doctrines that have been have been taught based on certain understandings of scripture. Now, of course, there's lots of debate about what those scriptures actually meant, and that's where queer theologians ha um, have been able to shed some insights. So, for those who decide that they would like to be to commit to, like, say, for instance, Christianity in some form, but not have to jettison or relinquish their sexuality, then there are ways clearly that are more liberative um, to, you know, in terms of interpreting the scriptures so that that reconciliation can indeed happen. But, you know, if, if we're honest, so much of what you've said about um, how deeply committed certain communities are to holding on to the quote unquote, more traditional um, views of what, uh, you know, of, of same sex, attraction as as it being an abomination cursed uh, hell deserving my my final question really then um you know to you would what is your thought um maybe the best way i frame the question is this because you're now you're our reverend you're a priest you're within within the church what is your understanding of what it means to be spiritual say for instance there are those of us who don't see ourselves wanting to um, adopt a particular religion. Perhaps that process of of reconciling whatever it is, like who, who you are, your interests, even the way you view spirituality, what you think this um, spirituality requires of you. And it feels like sometimes religion seems to demand people to conform to a particular form of, of what of what spirituality should look like to be able to either earn God's full acceptance or earn a place in heaven. But maybe there's just there's some resistance that they feel that actually, why do I need to do that to be spiritual? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that from your perspective um, as, as a minister. Thank you so much. I, I think that, you know, <laughs> You know, as, as someone who is, you know, uh, invested in the church as well, um, I would clearly say that, you know, God's full acceptance has happened before we were born. It happened at conception. Um, it yeah. also happened, you know, when I believe Jesus Christ was nailed on that cross. Um, okay. You know, people sometimes do not even understand. You know, we're very quick to read John 3.16 and forget about John 3.17. John 3, 17 says that God did not send Christ into this world to destroy it, but in order to draw all people to God. So, you know, th this is not a, a case of where God doesn't know who we are. God already knows who we are. We have already have are enjoying the full acceptance uh, of our relationship with God, whether we are in that relationship or not. I think the one thing I'll say is that my understanding is that everybody has, everybody, everyone is actually spiritual. Is actually how we carry ourselves on that spiritual journey. And that spiritual journey doesn't have to be linked to a religious denomination. And this is where sometimes we have a great problem. There is a difference between institutional church and church. The church is in our hearts. That is why we, we, we know that, you know, we do not worship God in a church built, you know, with, with walls. We, we worship with God in our hearts. If we have learned anything in the last 18 months of this pandemic is that we can worship God wherever we are. 
But at the same time, it is also important because scripture just says to us that please do not abandon the fellowship of your brothers and sisters. It is important that we come together as siblings, you know, for the common purpose of prayer and support for one another. The ministry of the of the Christian community evolves in different ways. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. You have church communities that have food bank. You have church communities that care for the elderly, for the vulnerable, for women and children, you know, uh, ensuring that, you know, poverty is eradicated. This is part of the Christian mission. But let me say two things that I think people need to understand. Christians do not have the monopoly to the presence of God. In fact, let me make mm-hmm. it even clearer. No one has the monopoly to the presence of God. Each individual have a unique access to God. You know, yeah. I think that it, 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 we allow people to tell us that I will talk to God on, on your behalf. That is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, Sammy, we, we have to be encouraged in knowing that we also have a direct connect, a unique relationship with God. And secondly, or, or finally, I think that you know, a church without the LGBT people is not a church of God. Mm. Because if the church can exclude LGBT people for no fault or reason of their own, I mean, you might have your own reason why you want to go to church. Do you think they're going to still accept you? And we're talking about the church that has caused pain and suffering, the institutional church that has caused pain and suffering. And I think that God is calling people like myself, you know, to help you know, our church communities to help um, LGBT Christians and, and people without faith to understand that God loves them just the way they are. I do not take this for granted, you know. I mean, I, I stay mm. humble, but I think that the, the fact, the more I talk about it, the more I even more convinced about God's mm. calling because it is so important that people have that understanding that okay. a church that does not welcome marginalized people it's not a church of God. Amen. Mm, wow. You have a very compelling story. You have an important story. I, I think as I listened, as my heart burned and resonated with so much of your journey, I cried at moments when you shared about the difficult uh, interactions with some of your close family members. And my hope and, you know, and, um, and prayer even is that even as you continue to do the work that you feel called to do, that you would be strengthened, that you would continue in your process of healing if there are any parts of your heart that you still carry pain and traumas, I'm sure there will be. But it sounds like you've come, you've come a long way, but of course the journey of life is is uh, is about continuing or, or, or growth or healing or transformation. The, the last um, part of, of this really is, is I would love if, uh, if you could just highlight where people can find you, if there are any upcoming projects, what people can do to support the work you're doing, both financially and otherwise. Uh, you can also quickly mention the recent um, acknowledgement that you've had for some of the work and advocacy that you've been doing. So just, uh, just, yeah, just a few minutes, just ha- um, outlining those things before we draw our conversation to a close. Thank you so much. Um- you know, people can find me on social media platforms and, of course, House of Rainbow. Um, for me, is on Twitter, is Rev Jude, R-E-V-J-I-D-E. On Instagram, is Jude McCauley. And, uh, and on Facebook, is Jude McCauley as well. 
Um, for House of Rainbow, it's actually House of Rainbow on Twitter, on Instagram, and on the Facebook. Um, you know, we've been doing a lot of work, um, especially in the lockdown. Um, we have created what we call Circle of Fates, and this is something that we're hoping to bring back, you know, post-lockdown. Um, but currently, we have a program that goes uh, on air 7 a.m. London time. Sorry for the Americans, because that is dead in the middle of the night. But 7 a.m. is live on Clubhouse, Twitter Space, Instagram, and Facebook. And um, um, we, we, it's called God Adores You Moments. And we have, you know, speakers and pastors, you know, from Botswana, Rwanda, uh, Zimbabwe. Many have actually, you know, signed up, you know, to help to participate in some of these programs. We also continue a lot of conversations and webinars um, on many subject matter. You know, just yesterday we had a program on uh, queer parents and these are queer people who are parents. And also we're looking at doing programs where um, we have parents of queer people coming and share their own stories and their own conversation, their own, their own journey. And of course, you know, the bulk of our work is around wellness and um, we do a lot of referrals and around, you know, uh, therapy, not conversion therapy, uh, you know, mm. uh, counseling and therapy. And, um, and a lot of pastoral care, there's a lot of conversations to be heard. Um, another major part of our work, because we've been so busy this year, is that we do have uh, a program, a seminar that we deliver twice a year. Um, particularly since the lockdown, um, that we look at what the Bible says in favor of same-sex relationship. We made it clear, we made a title clear. So it's not just the Bible and homosexuality. We say what the Bible says in favor of same-sex relationship. Um, people can look out for that. I think we'll be um, the program will be returning in 2022, April and September. I know it sounds like a, a distance away, but trust me, this time catches up with you very soon. Um, so that's it really for now. Um, I mean, in London, we are, we have a lot of social events, you know, so we do come together sometimes. Um, one particular program, goodness, if I didn't talk about this, I probably would have failed, um, is, our, <laughs> is our peer support program to um, Black African Caribbean men who have sex with men. Um, they could be gay, bisexual or trans men who are HIV positive. We have an incredible program for uh, this group of people as well, um, because one, okay. we want everyone to be happy, comfortable, and live the best life that they can. Um, the work of House of Rainbow is incredible. Um, so we, we do quite a lot, but we focus primarily on the Black LGBT community. Um, that is our, our main priority, and we're totally unapologetic about that. Um, so one thing for me is that, you know, we have numbers. So if anybody wants to find out, you know, what we do, um, go to houseofrainbow.org. There is a, a website with lots of information and um, our social media information are even far up to date as well. Thank you. Excellent. That's, that's fantastic. Today, it has been an esteemed honor to host you uh, on the podcast today. Um, I will also be personally contacting you for the bank details as well for uh, the House of Rainbow so I can make a donation as well, just in honor of the work that you do and for your time as well spent today, just sharing your, your heart. 
So thank you, um, thank you so it, much. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it is important. Um, I can actually tell you that on our website we actually have a donation page. Um, it's okay. not a bank account, and it's got a, pay, a link to our PayPal account as well for those in which that is more convenient yeah. to. Um, yeah. You know, we are and, and we're a, a charity. We are not for profit, um, mm. and the work we do is incredible. I, I could not say enough. You know, I, I've been mm-hmm. doing this for 14 years, so I'm incredibly grateful to, to those who support us and, and look out for us. Thank you. Are you on the edge of your seat? Because I know I am. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Like and subscribe to the Yoel Amawale podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes or previous episodes. And I'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at yoelomawale.com. Thank you.